Good evening, everybody. Thanks for joining us at Liberty Station. Uh, and as Bryce, my uh, co-pilot, uh, Super Bryce, he always wants me to emphasize the reason why it's called Liberty Station. And as you know, liberty is doing what's right. Freedom is having choices. So you come to Liberty Station to board the Freedom Train. And uh, we want to educate you on all the principles of liberty so that you are wise. And when we exercise that liberty, we get freedom. And uh, so we're going to be starting, and, and this, is, this is new for us, and this is going to be a recurring deal. We're going to do what we call Federer Fridays. Uh, and for those of you who don't know Bill Federer, uh, he is a, a prolific author, a, a tremendous historian. And every time he's on our program, uh, I'm so blessed and I get insights. And it puts everything into perspective for me. Uh, the way he outlines the, the development of socialism, how he shows marketing and the development of this and how we got to where we are, but you see this historical background. And I, I love that because it gives us the uh, ammunition, maybe, for lack of a better description, on, on how to look at this geopolitical horizon and see the historical relevance of it and then how to combat it because we're not the first who have gone through this. I mean, you, you visit history and the answers are found there, but you got to dig deep. And that's what Bill does. Yeah, no, it's amazing. And uh, I, I have, I think, most of his books. I know that because my uh, bookshelf is stuffed with them. Um, and I, I've, I've been sharing a lot of the things with my families. We do um, we do certain things at uh, dinner time where we'll read some of his um, little segments, and uh, it's beautiful. And love love the work that he's doing. Now, I want to I want to share with everybody. Make sure you understand that uh, when when we interview Bill Federer, uh, everything is linear for Bill. Uh, everything's connected in a thought and he, he travels. So there won't be a lot of interaction now and then you and I'll jump in, but Bill is best left alone yeah. because let him go. Yeah. You just let him go. And, and, and I, it's, it, it's a, for me, I love being just an observer yeah. uh, watching this guy just light it up. So I just want to give everybody a fair warning. There, it's not going to be a give and take and talking back and forth, although there'll be a little of that. We'll get to rest our voices. Yeah, we get to rest our voices because uh, when Bill shares, everyone just needs to listen. And I love this man. He Not only is he a prolific author, not only is he a tremendous historian, he's just a wonderful man. Uh, and he won't say this about himself, but I personally, there's no guile in Bill Fetter. I've been with him. I've traveled with him. I've been in a car with him for hours on end. And there's just joy, and the man is just precious. He loves Jesus with all his heart. He'll present in-depth presentations of history and never, ever forgets to present the gospel of Christ. He loves Jesus with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind. And uh, he has traveled prolifically across the country. He, he is beloved, uh, and he is one that has also given me insights into understanding how to deal with different denominations because he's welcome in a, a just various denominations and churches across the country and most churches just can't get along they, they call this when you try to get pastors in a room together they call it the porcupine theory uh the pastor say you got a lot of great points just keep them away from me and to get pastors unified or at least to understand all the dimensions of the different denominations and pastors and to be able to speak into each of these congregations it's a tremendous gift and, and i attribute that to the simple fact that bill is just a tender sweet caring precious man and nobody can deny that who meets him. So, would you agree? I would agree one hundred percent. So, uh, so Fridays are going to be a, a segment for a segment for learning for yeah, sure. A segment for learning. Federer Fridays, and and we're all going to be richer for it. One hundred percent. Yeah. So, so put your uh, put your thinking caps on, and and we're going to launch here. So, Bill, are you there? I want to welcome you. 
Well, it's great to be with you, and I certainly can't live up to that introduction. And I um, want to let you know how much I respect both of you. Oh, thanks, Bill. Well, uh, before we we started recording, um, you had alluded to, and we had talked to you that this week has been obviously with all Americans across the country and the world itself as we're looking at the Ukraine and uh, we're looking at Russia and all that's happening in this threat of World War III. And and then, you know, as we watched uh, Dr. Hansen outline uh, this geopolitical picture of, and, and historical referencing of the Ukraine, and then we saw Dr. Keith Rose talk about how the Ukraine is, you know, for the geo, for the globalists, this is their center of operations. Yeah, we're the cornerstone of their movement right now and, and kind of what's happening, which is why we, you know, saw Ukraine. I mean, what's with Ukraine? You're, you're hearing it way back in 2016, and, you know, they went after uh, Donald Trump on the basis of yeah. Ukraine. You know, all these things are happening that, that now is starting to make sense in this big picture. And, and even with uh, Dr. Keith, when we asked, I, I asked him a tough question. I said, let me play devil's advocate. You're telling us that, you know, uh, that, 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 uh, that these, these uh, you know, one world folks would, would, would want the Ukraine to, in a sense, survive, but we're funding Russia coming in, but they don't want America to produce the oil. We would rather be dependent on Russia, which because, as, as Dr. Hansen pointed out, when it's over $100 a barrel, it's just filling Putin's coffers yep. with money, which is funding the war. So they're out there looking at Venezuela instead of wanting to come to the United States. And I said, why would they do that? And, it, and the bottom line, which was brilliant, is they don't want to reinvigorate America's economy. That's part of the global reset. These globalists, you know, want to paralyze us with green energy, which is, is you know, run simply even, even windmills, even electric cars still run by fossil fuels. Um, and it's all directed towards this great reset. And so, Bill, put put the whipped cream and the cherry on top of all of the things that we've been studying this week, because I know you have a historical insight into this, uh, especially with a great reset, all of these things. Take it wherever you want to go. We're finished with the introduction. Bill Federer, do what you do best. Instruct us. We sit as students at your feet. Go get them. Lord Acton was a British parliamentarian, and he said, official truth is not actual truth. So anything that you have coming out as the official story <laughs> is not the actual story. You can be suspect of what's below the surface. Uh, division. You have to create division in order to uh, have a realignment. This is the Marxist strategy. Uh, some recent history, um, we uh, had... Uh, the Soviet-Afghan War, 1979, and the U.S. in our CIA did the largest covert operation with the CIA. We armed and trained the Taliban with our advanced missiles and weapons. It was called Operation Cyclone. It was so big that Tom Hanks and Julia Roberts did a movie about it called Charlie Wilson's War, and Sylvester Stallone did a movie about it called Rambo Three. This is our CIA arming and training the Taliban against the Soviets. Uh, after that was over, uh, you had Democrat Jimmy Carter abandon our ally, the Shah of Iran, and let the Ayatollah take over. And then there's the Iran-Iraq war, and we certainly don't want Iran to win now that Reagan's in. And so Reagan, with um, Rumsfeld, was arming and training Saddam Hussein <laughs> and uh, so, so that they could fight the Iran with the Ayatollah. 
and then George W. Bush gets in and on a dime switches and makes him the enemy. And uh, the whole world comes together against him. And you remember the speech that George H.W. Bush said, uh, this is terrible, but out of it will come a new world order. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and then you even had, uh, you know, Lewinsky, uh, Bill Clinton is dropping in the polls and he fires some missiles into Bosnia and Serbia. And then Clinton does Operation Brute Force, where he is having U.S. arms go through the, the Iranian regime and go through Muslim terrorists and uh, to the Bosnian Muslims to fight the Serbian Christians. Bill, what, so, what, what, weren't, weren't our troops also under the authority of the United Nations in Bosnia? Yes, and that is uh, something that the United Nations is definitely a, a globalist organization that doesn't have uh, America's best interests in mind. No. But the reason I'm bringing this up is there are things going on behind the scenes. Uh, Trump gets in and stops all that. And he's uh, there's actually a Los, Los Angeles Times I took a screenshot of the, uh, the headline, and it said, um, terrorist groups armed by the Pentagon fight terrorist groups armed by the CIA. Uh, so here we were, under Obama, arming and training terrorists over there in Syria, so much so that Democrat Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard introduces a bill in 2016 called Stop Arming Terrorists Act. It's like, okay, and so, uh, we see that the CIA has uh, had their own agenda. Now, let's. Uh, the agenda includes Cold War tactics of dividing a country into groups and pitting them against each other to destabilize the country. And then everybody panics and wants someone with enough strength to restore order. And that's when you, you usurp power. So, this idea of causing a crisis is so old, it goes back to Lucifer. So here you have heaven, and somebody is sowing division in heaven, right? It's Lucifer, and he's cast out, and then he sows division in the garden and gets Adam to blame Eve, and he sows division with Cain, Kill, and Abel. And, and then we fast forward to the Hebrew Republic and the story of Gideon. And Gideon just defeated 100,000 Midianites. There is no threat to Israel. They are at peace. But Gideon has an illegitimate son named Abimelech. And Abimelech wants power. And so he does what I just described. He goes to the town of Shechem and he does race identity politics, critical race theory, right? He wants to break. He says, uh, is it right that all the sons of Gideon reign over you? Remember also that I am your flesh and your bone. And it says the men of Shechem said, well, we have to support uh, Abimelech because he is our brother. So forget whether he's good at ruling or not. He's one of us. We're identifying with him on a skin level. And then they go to the city treasury, the temple of Balbarith, and they take 70 pieces of silver to hire vain and worthless persons. Antifa groups, BLM groups, to do what? To commit violence <laughs> and to go out and to, uh, to destroy and kill all the other sons of Gideon. And right. then once he does that, he usurps power and says the men of Shechem may have been like king. So the Hebrew Republic was at peace, but you had this one guy intentionally sowing division, hiring rioters, doing this race identity politics. Now, the Hebrew Republic would have ended here rather than a century later with King Saul had not someone throw a, threw a millstone over the wall and it killed them like. But again, this strategy of sowing division, uh, I've shared it probably before, but for those that maybe have not heard me, uh, Machiavelli 500 years ago, 
Italy was a bunch of city-states that always fought. Machiavelli thought if one prince could control all the city-states, it would stop the infighting. And so he writes a book called The Prince, where he advocates the ends justifies the means. The end of one prince controlling all of Italy is such a good end because it'll stop the infighting. Any means necessary to get there is justified. So the city-states are at peace. The prince comes in and hires rioters um, to commit uh, violent acts. And when it gets bad enough, the people in that city-state cry out for help. And the prince comes in, gets rid of the very criminals he bribed to create the problem. No one knows the better for it. And everyone praises the prince as a hero. So it's good marketing. You create the need and fill it. You go yeah. around the back of the door, set it on fire. Then you go around the front of the door and sell, sell them fire, fire extinguishers. Yeah. And they'll yeah. pay anything for it. And thank you for being there. So this concept of Machiavellianism um, is actually uh, reflected in Rahm Emanuel's quote, never let a crisis go to waste. It's an opportunity to push your agenda. And of right. course, Hillary Clinton gave that same quote. And so when you and I and see similarly, a so did Klaus Schwab. I mean, yeah, yeah, they're, they're all on the same sheet of music. Yeah. Sorry, Bill. Yeah. So when you and I see a crisis, our response is how can we help people through it? They see a crisis. Their response is how can they usurp power through it? And so it goes from just waiting around for a crisis to happen to maybe egging it on. And, you know, we've seen uh, entrapment where the FBI will uh, maybe like uh, the kidnapping of Governor Whitmer. Um, right. And so you get a bunch of FBI guys together and they recruit some low IQ people and they organize everything, plan everything, pay for everything. And they call these guys and, and bully them to show up. And then they say, we caught this, this kidnapping a plot. It's like, OK, uh, you were sort of the ones planning it. Uh, and there's a large indi indication that that's what January 6th was with all the right. FBI involved in it. And people that were there noticed there weren't any cameras, which means that. Uh, the people that were there weren't give, being able to give their side of it. Uh, and uh, I saw a, a video recently of uh, called Capital Punishment, but it shows Antifa people in the bushes taking off their clothes and putting on uh, MAGA T-shirts and then going out right. and, and infiltrating. And, and so you, um, so with this, let me give a couple more stories. Uh, Britain became the largest empire in the world. And how did they do it? Did they just walk into a country and say, hi, uh, we want to be the largest empire in the world. Give us some control of your country. No, it happened a little differently. So let's look at India. Uh, in 1714, the British land in Bengal and open up a trading post that turns into a trading fort that turns into them having guns. They get involved in local politics. They observe the differences between the different kingdoms. They give guns to one kingdom, guns to another kingdom, and they stir up and fan these ancient animosities until the two kingdoms break out and start fighting each other. And when they bloody each other up really good, the British come in to restore order and they take control of both. And they did this again and again and again until they took over all of India, a quarter of the world's population. Amazing. They, they actually tried doing it during the Revolutionary War. The Americans and the Indians had reached an equilibrium. The British General Johnny Burgoyne lands in Canada and he meets with the Mohawk Indians and he gives promises of money for scalps. And so they go ahead to the British Army and scalp Americans. It's mentioned in our declaration where it says the king has excited domestic insurrection among us and, and stirred up the, the, the native, uh, you know, the Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an indiscriminate killing of men, women, and children. And, but it is mentioned in the Declaration of Independence as one of the reasons we're rebelling. It happened again during the War of 1812. 
uh, Fort Mims, Alabama. Uh, we had an American fort. And south of that is Pensacola, Florida, which is controlled by the British. So the British go to the Red Stick Creek Indians. And of course, the pronunci French pronunciation of Red Stick is Baton Rouge. Baton Rouge, Louisiana, right? right? And so the British go to the Red Stick Creek Indians and offer money for scalps. So the Indians capture Fort Mims and then proceed to scalp 500 of the captives that they got. And it's there's a historical marker that says this is the, uh, the Indians had been armed by British in this phase of the War of 1812. So do the British care about the Red Stick Creek Indians? No, they're, they're finding the groups. And so this is what Karl Marx called critical theory, where you'd go into a country, observe all the groups, uh, ethnically, economically, racially, religiously, and you call some victims, others oppressors, haves and have-nots, and you stir them up to protest and riot and commit violence. And when everybody feels insecure and fearful, they'll trade freedom for security. Right. And that's when they'll surrender and you can usurp power. So, so that's an un, a basic understanding during the Cold War, uh, these tactics got perfected of observing a country and all the groups and, uh, and then co-opting them for political purposes. Um, so, uh, and then the Americans learned how to do this in reverse, and we began to do it with CIA operations in different countries, in Guatemala and in Iran and um, you know, even Chile. And so these tactics of going into a country, observing the groups. I actually talked to some uh, former CIA people and they said, yeah, we hate to admit it, but we would go into villages like in Latin America or in Africa and we'd set fire to the village and make it look like the other side did it. And all the villagers would come to us and say, help us against the other side. And we would organize them. Now, all of that ostensibly had a patriotic purpose because we were wanting the country to stay in the orbit of the West rather than in the Soviet orbit. Um, but these tactics, again, have been perfected. And under Obama, they began to be used on American soil. And there was a co-opting. It's called the politicizing of federal agencies. That's a nice way of putting it. But the IRS, instead of being just an objective group, began to target conservative groups with Lois Lerner meeting 147 times with President Obama. And when she is called to Congress to testify, she pleads the fifth and walks out. And then we see Eric Holder under Obama, and he's given guns to drug gangs in Mexico, Operation Fast and Furious, and he's destabilizing Mexico along the border. And when he's called in to testify, he pleads the fifth and walks out. And then we see the co-opting of the NSA to dig up dirt on that particular president's political enemies. And, uh, and so now we see this happening with these tactics that have been used successfully on other countries' soils uh, with the ostensible patriotic purpose of keeping them in our orbit rather than in the Soviet orbit. But these tactics have been co-opted and now they're being used against us on our own soil. Weaponized against the American people. Yes, and um, so... Um, so with that, the Ukraine, um, we have um, the Burisma company, the, the energy company with Hunter Biden and his laptop and all the corruption that was going on with millions of dollars going to Hunter Biden. What were they doing there? Um, and then uh, President Biden, when he was vice president, is over there 
and he says, um, I was actually doing an interview, and he, he says that uh, he told them, the Ukrainians, that they had to fire the investigator that's investigating his son, or Biden would hold back billions of U.S. money. Right. So we began to see, under the Obama-Biden administration, the pressuring of these foreign governments to capitulate to their particular political agenda. And uh, for those not familiar uh, with what money laundering is, um, for example, if, if you have gotten a whole lot of money from uh, drug sales, uh, if you put it in the bank, uh, the FBI will uh, do a little research and try to figure out where you got it, if you didn't pay taxes on it and all the rest, and that's how they caught Al Capone, was tax evasion on all of his corrupt dealings. But um, so, so if you've got this money, what do you do with it? You go to a casino and you bring in $100,000 and you quote unquote lose it. And then you maybe win back 80,000 of it and the casino's happy and you get a receipt that says you won this money at the casino. Now you can deposit it in your bank and the IRS, if they want to do an audit, it's like, well, you, you got it legitimately from this casino. So the money is laundered, it's washed, so to speak. Well, this is done politically. Whenever you see the federal government wanting to give billions of dollars to foreign countries for climate change, for, uh, I, I read where you know, the, the Biden administration wants to give billions for uh, the gender uh, uh, type of sensitivity yeah. training in other countries, all, all this stuff. Yeah, one was Iran. Yeah, well, and they the also, gender they training in Iran. And Afghanistan, that yeah. works so well. Yeah. yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead, Bill. And so all that, all that happens is the money goes to the corrupt leader in that country who gets to keep a little sliver of it and the rest of it is funneled back into the coffers of the corrupt politicians in America. And that, and, explain, that explains how folks like Nancy Pelosi can afford these mansions, even though all she's ever been making is a government you know, salary. Or, or a half a million dollar speaking fee. Yeah, half a million you know, speaking to fee. Uh, Bill Clinton or something yeah, like and that. And the Clinton Foundation. Yeah, just, yeah I, I get it. Yeah, and so here, uh, when the earthquake in Haiti and hundreds of millions of dollars go to the Clinton Foundation to help the people in Haiti. Uh, virtually none of it reaches the people in Haiti. It goes to the Clinton Foundation and it gets funneled into her campaign. And when she was Secretary of State, she was having her office coordinate when she would go around with State Department, Department meetings on the side, she would meet with the wealthy people in these countries and do a Jesse Jackson shakedown saying, uh, you got to give money to my foundation or my, otherwise when I get in, you'll have no access. And so, um, Pay so to play. This, so, so the reason I bring this up, so let's say here's Hillary. She gives away, when she was Secretary of State, a fifth of the U.S. uranium to guess who? Russia, right. in exchange for a $145 million contribution to her Clinton Foundation. And when, so she's obviously colluding with Russia. When this becomes, uh, they get wind that it could go public, she hires the Steele dossier to accuse her opponent, Donald Trump, of colluding with Russia. And this tactic is called psychological projection, where you accuse your opponent of the exact crime that you're guilty of. 
Um, Sigmund Freud called it psychological projection, where a person will deny in themselves a negative quality and then attribute that quality to their person they don't like. Little kids do it. I didn't start yeah. the fight, you did. Or a cheating spouse does this. They accuse the innocent spouse of being unfaithful. How dare you accuse me? You're the one that's being, a, right? Um, and so this David Axelrod was President Obama's campaign manager. And on NPR radio, uh, 2010, he said, in Chicago politics, we have a tradition where you throw a brick through your own campaign office window and then call a press conference to, to accuse your opponent. Right. All right. So you do the crime, you blame that exact crime. And so again, let's say there's a candidate that's extorting Ukraine, saying stop investigating my son or I'll hold back billions of dollars of US aid. You wanna accuse your opponent of extorting Ukraine. The exact crime, even make them go through an impeachment trial over it. Right. Uh, and why? Because their name gets smeared with it in the media. And if it ever gets pointed back at the guilty person, by that time, the water is muddied, the public doesn't know who to trust, and you get a pass. And it's great because the subpoena process to do the investigation is an excuse to collect all the evidence that could convict them and destroy it. Yeah. So all of Hillary's hard drives and cell phones and laptops and text messages and emails, they're all destroyed and erased under the Mueller, quote unquote, investigation of Trump. So, so this is the, um, the tactics. I'm convinced the January 6th investigation is, is probably doing the same thing, all right? It's going to get all the information of the, the, the FBI uh, operatives that were in the crowd and so forth. But uh, official truth is not actual truth. This is, even goes back to Plato. Um, Plato thought that democracy was, was chaos and was doomed to fail because it's based on the people having virtue and people who really don't have virtue. And so uh, Plato says the best you can hope for is a nice tyrant. And this nice tyrant will stay in power um, by, teach, by teaching the, the children a noble lies. He said, well, we want one single grand lie which will be believed by everybody. And so all the way back to Plato, you're talking about somebody wanting to stay in power, just feeding the public lies. And if they can get everybody to agree on the lie, they get to stay in. And um, in, but, in, my, in my youth, being very naive, I imagined that, you know, with the coming age of the Internet and all the cell phones and everything, you know, that, that we would see, we would see so much of this stuff in, in evidence and people would, you know, would be hard to, to hide these things and it would be hard to do these lies all the time. Uh, and then I, you know, I came to the realization, you know, in this last couple of years that you could have Nancy Pelosi kill a puppy in the street on video and they would say it was deceptively edited or, yeah. you know, what did that puppy do to her? And then, you know, and that would quickly run through the yeah. news cycle and no one would care. And it's, it's a, it's amazing that we're in this day and age now. Yep. Yeah. Well, um, now uh, one of the things that I mentioned at the beginning was the great reset. And so uh, the situation was, uh, we, we just came through the crisis of COVID. Uh, that was a really good opportunity to uh, upset the normal voting because of COVID. So to, to do mail-in voting. Right. And then if there was uh, uh, fraud that could be uh, covered by this quote unquote emergency. So you need an emergency to do things uh, differently uh, and get away with it. And so let's look at Ukraine. The same people that were shutting down uh, alternative voices when it came to COVID, the, all the media outlets, the, and the same media outlets that, that wouldn't let 
uh, alternative voices be aired regarding the January 6th uh, event. Um, all those voices are immediately in favor of what's going on um, in, in Ukraine uh, as far as our uh, opposition to it. And let me make it clear, I'm in opposition to it. Um, but I think there's a, a deeper layer that we need to peel back. And what's that? Uh, there's something called SWIFT, S-W-I-F-T, and it is a agreement among international banks for funds transfers between countries. Okay. And Russia has been part of this. And so with the sanctions on Russia, there is talk of blocking them out of SWIFT. Um, and so uh, what would happen if that, if that took place? It would force Russia to join the Chinese system called KIPS, C-I-P-S. And it's a ruble yuan based exchange system versus SWIFT, which is a US dollar based exchange system. Wow. And um, the largest item that is traded in the world is oil. And it has always been traded in US dollars. In Russia, if I'm not mistaken, is the third largest producer of oil. Um, and wait, 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 wait. Let me, let me, let me, let me, let me just pause here for folks. And maybe I'm, you know, not the sharpest knife in the drawer, and I just came to this understanding because listening to Dr. Keith Rose and then Dr. Hansen, Vic, Victor Davis Hansen, and and piecing together the complexity of the Ukraine. Now you throw out SWIFT and KIPS. Kips. Uh, so the idea is we purchase the oil from Russia. Then we shut them out of SWIFT. Then they then go to the, the, yuan, uh, the yuan and the, and the ruble, ruble market, destroying the strength of the American dollar. Uh, this is all calculated. Is, am I hearing that correctly? Yeah, uh, I mean, they've, they've talked about it for decades. Um, but once that happens, then oil will not be traded in what's called petrodollars. Now, petrodollars is the U.S. dollar, but uh, every all the oil transactions that take place around the world have always been in U.S. dollars. And if Russia decides to no longer trade in dollars, then the countries that are buying from Russia, and there's lots of them, uh, they will be forced to have to buy in this new ruble yuan based exchange system, which means there'll be trillions and trillions of dollars of U.S. dollars that uh, nobody wants, and they'll all come home to roost. And the U.S. dollar will inflate exponentially. There'll be an untold amount of dollars chasing the same amount of goods. And so everything will reach an extreme level of inflation. Now, inflation. Uh, Lenin is credited with saying uh, you that socialism is a transition phase from capitalism to communism. And Lenin is credited with saying that you grind the middle class out of existence between the two millstones of taxation and inflation. Wow. So communism is where the government owns everything. And you, uh, inflation means all your savings disappears. You've worked hard, you saved $1,000, and $1,000, instead of buying a whole lot of stuff, now can buy a, you know, maybe a loaf of bread, like the Zimbabwe situation. 
uh, and then taxation is you just take the money away. And so if there is uh, rampant inflation, then people that are on fixed income will not be able to survive. And, and not to mention that the cost of oil will go up, which all the farmers use gas for their tractors and the fertilizer that they use to fertilize the field is made out of oil um, and natural gas. And, uh, and so if the price of that goes up, then all the food prices are gonna go up, uh, the, all the travel prices, everything is gonna go up very high, very fast. And it'll all be blamed on Russia. It'll all be blamed on Ukraine. And then you'll have the government will come to the rescue uh, and say, we're going to scrap the dollar and go to a Fed coin, which is which like they've already a, started to talk about, which is like a cryptocurrency, but it only it's controlled by the government and it's tracked by the government. So the government can track every single person's financial transactions uh, and not just in America, but the, all the Western countries will be instituting a similar thing and, and it'll all be connected, but they'll be able to turn off anyone they want, not just... Well, and, and not, yeah, I mean, turn off actual, like, okay, now you, you've eaten too much meat. Yeah. You know, your, your coin does not buy meat anymore. You know, all of those sort of things. You've had your allotment. So it's in line with, with Klaus Schwab saying that you'll own nothing and like it. You'll, you'll eat less meat. Happy. America won't be a superpower. These are three of the yeah. eight statements that he made in the World Economic Forum. Okay, I'm tracking you, Bill. Yeah, so in Canada, a lady gave $50 to that trucker's convoy, and the banks turned off her bank account. Uh, and that, you know, the news spread a bit. Here, the, the ability to turn off so somebody can't buy anything. How are you going to go to the gas station and swipe your card and get gas? How are you going to go to the grocery store and swipe your card? You, you've been turned off. And if everything is now through a federally controlled uh, electronic transfer, uh, it'll be very similar to China. And, and China's been instituting this as well. Uh, it's a, but again, you need a crisis. Because if you just come to people and say, hey, why don't you just give up all your money and let's go, go to something that the government can, can track? People say, I don't want to do, I don't want to do that. It's sort of like, you know, if you would have, you know, decades ago said that the, you go to the airport and the government's going to open up all your suitcases and rifle through it. And they're going to pat, pat down your body. And little 80-year-old ladies in wheelchairs are going to pat them down. And, and we would have said, no way. But there's a crisis, right? That uh, you have some people uh, that fly airplanes into buildings. And after that crisis, what? Now all travel is controlled. And, and you can begin to look one by one. Uh, and, and after the crisis is over and after freedom has been given up, that particular threat disappears. The, the, you know, there's not been any more planes flying into buildings since that happened. Uh, but the government you know, doesn't give yeah. back your freedom. No, once once they've won that ground, you, you're never yeah. going to get it back. Um, but but crises are necessary, and we're seeing it escalate <laughs> to a, a global scale that it's not been before. And with 5G and with satellites, um, the ability to literally track everybody. You know, Augustus Caesar wanted to have a worldwide tracking system. It was called a census. Right, he wanted to track everybody that was under. If he would have had five G and cell phones and cameras, he would have used that. There's always been the dictator, their desire to want to control the world, 
and uh, and gee, I mean, here's Genghis Khan, kills 30 million people from Korea to Hungary. If if he had to died, he'd have been happy to continue killing and conquer the world. Uh, the the spirit of Antichrist is always there. Now. Uh, I encourage myself by looking back and reminding myself, if the devil was all powerful, he had conquered the world a long time ago, but he's not. And Jesus says the wheat and tares grow together till the harvest. And every generation has had a crisis. Yes, it, it is reaching more of a global scale that it's never been at before. Uh, it does seem to fall in line with a lot of stuff that's in the Bible. Um, but God chose for you and I to be alive at this time. Amen. He knows every dirty backroom deal that everybody's doing. And he thinks that we've got what it takes to handle it. And, uh, you know, I was listening to an interview with David Horowitz, and uh, he told the interviewer, he says, the problem with you is you're, you're thinking too logically. <laughs> he says, the other side just thinks passionately. He says, the problem with thinking logically and thinking things through is, is you get fatalistic, and then you get depressed. And he says, we can't get fatalistic, and we can't get depressed. And he was even saying that we got to trust God. And, um, Amen. and Amen. so here we are that... Um, you know, it's almost like the spiritual descendants of Cain are always trying to kill the spiritual descendants of Abel. <laughs> you know, you yeah. got that murderous spirit, and then you got those that trust in the lamb, right? Abel trusted yeah. in the lamb. And, it's and, it's um, faith affirming for me. Yeah. It really is. It is, yeah. But, but I do think that we are being pushed to a decision-making point. Uh, you know, every uh, Hallmark movie, it comes to that critical moment where the guy has to forsake all others and, you know, choose the one. And that's like the highlight of the movie. It's like, okay, they're going to forsake all. And, and it's like, we're the bride of Christ. And it's like, God is like pushing us to this moment where we are going to have to make the decision, right? Are we going to go with all the others? Or are we going to say, Jesus, I'm with you. I'm going to forsake all. All I care about is you. All I care about is pleasing you and doing your will and reaching as many people as possible for you while while you still have me here on this earth. Amen. I'm in full agreement on that. Now, as as a pastor of a church um, here in Thousand Oaks, I think we're the 13th largest city in California, and and we're looking at this geopolitical horizon. We're looking at everything you just described, which is ominous. Um, you know, folks. And, and I, I remember hearing some real solid West Texas wisdom, uh, you know, as, as a man who had made become a billionaire, high school dropout. And he just said, you know, uh, the banker would say no to my request. And I wasn't going to let that guy stand in the way of what it is I needed to do. I, he wasn't going to be my obstacle. I had to figure out a way around it. So we see the censorship on the Internet. We see... Uh, Peter Thiel and a number of others invest in Rumble and take it from obscurity to now, you know, they've had more views, I believe, last month than YouTube did. What are people doing to prepare for this nefarious attempt to try to co-opt the world's wealth and enslave humanity? What are some of the areas that people, or at least some of the things you've seen, that people are coming up with alternatives through wisdom uh, to retain the sovereignty and the freedom of the individual. Yeah, well, I think um, I think the Lord is letting it get to that place where everybody's got to do something, uh, local, local, local. And, and you're, yeah. you've been the champion of that. I love your saying when you would speak to pastors. You know, defend your pea patch. You know, bean patch. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Bean patch. And, and so the idea is um, the the local school boards. 
that, uh, you know, I ran for Congress three times, had to raise millions of dollars. Most people, that's that's out of their realm of conception, how you could do that. But you were you responsible. Them, hey, you were re- you were responsible for, for getting Dick Gephardt out of the speaker spot. People yeah, don't know was, that, but that's you. But um, yes, yes, and it was a uh, it was uh, a little bit of a you know we had all these parades, and afterwards, my daughter she was like I don't know twelve. She goes, that was fun. Let's do it again. <laughs> and of course, with all the negative ads and everything, we're like, oh, we're not. Through. But um, but but if you. If you tell people, look, that school that you drive by every day, they're teaching transgendered drag queen story hour, boys and girls bathrooms, and and dominating female sports. Are you in favor of all that? Well, no. Do you know that that school board member got elected by less people that are in your church? That if you just picked somebody and got people to vote for them, they, they could win and you could change the school situation overnight? And... I'm convinced that if pastors can just get their local church members, you know, the word politics comes from the word polis, which means city. So politics is simply the business of the city. And right. if, if pastors can just get their members involved in a school board race, I'm convinced all the other races will take care of themselves. People say, Amen. hey, we want that. We can run for city council. Hey, I can run for state rep. I can do that. They'll take care of all that. The pastor doesn't have to touch that at all. And we come back to Jesus. You know, their their tactic is to guilt trip Christians into being more Christian than Christ. If you're really Christian, you'll tolerate this agenda being taught to the children. Question, would Jesus teach that? He would say it'd Jesus. be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and cast in the deepest ocean. Yeah. Because when these little ones to stumble. So every day you're driving by a school where they're causing these little ones to stumble. Uh, there's a, a proverb that says, if you see some injustice taking place and you do nothing, uh, and you act like you didn't see it. The Lord knows you saw it and will hold you accountable. Uh, 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 A man who knows the good to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. And so so, so that's something. I think local, local, local. And I think, you know, God gives everybody's ideas. We we serve a God that is just immensely creative. Uh, You know, uh, every year or two, I go scuba diving with my sons and you see gazillions of different kind of fishes, little bitty silvery ones and yellow ones and shiny ones. And, and, and it's like they all have a little job to do. And, and God just shows his glory in, in creating all kinds of different things. Well, he has all kinds of different people and he has all kinds of different things for different people to do. Yeah. And so instead of the person saying, gee, I need somebody to tell me what to do. No, you seek God. He'll tell you what needs to do. It may be working with a different organization, or it may not. You may be starting something brand new, but you got to do something, and he will give you the idea. Bill, I, I love that you said that, and, and forgive me for uh, you know segueing into this, but I I I really want to take a moment because uh, I get that question all the time. What do I do? And and I tell him, look, I don't even know what I'm supposed to do. You, you need to ask the Lord, and and if God gives you a direction, we're here to support you. And, you know, I've been busy traveling and we got Pastor Rick doing the co-pastoring and I sat down at a staff meeting and Micah, who's not only our worship leader, but also in a sense, our admin guy, um, he starts listing all the ministries in the church and I didn't even know they existed and they were all organically established. It's not like me as a senior pastor going, we need to do this and let's organize. I didn't ask for any of it. It just was organic. And we've watched in our community as a result of, 
you know, for lack of a vision, the people perish, but it's conversely true that you give a vision and, and people, you know, do great things. We, we've watched a, a local newspaper put together, nonprofit folded by elderly and delivered by the young to contend with the newspaper in the community. We've, we've watched as uh, we've done biblical citizenship mm-hmm. and now people are attending school board. They started a free Ventura. None of these things I asked for, none of these things were formulated from top down. It's just people wanting to do their part. Bill, I, I can't thank you enough for bringing that up as an example of how to contend with this, that it is local. And if everybody did this, if every church did it, you'd light a thousand fires that the globalists couldn't contend with. So thank you for doing that. Well, I, um, you know, we helped with the church years ago when, uh, with the youth ministry. And I remember going to the the pastor and saying, we have, um, you know, uh, a vision and opportunity to take, you know, several dozen kids to Scotland, right? And on a mission trip. Uh, and, um, you know, they speak English over there and there's a lot of socialism creeping in. And I don't know if you knew, but, but in Scotland, as soon as somebody turned 18, they got welfare. Uh, so, I mean, they get these crowds of these young people who just wander around all day and they had no motivation to get a job because they're all automatically getting welfare checks. Anyway, Universal basic but it was, it was an opportunity yeah. to witness. And the pastor told, you know, responded to me, he goes, you got the vision? the Lord will give you the idea to get the money. <laughs> and so instead of the church paying for it, so we had pizza things, we had fundraisers, we did all kinds of those. And guess what? We raised the money. We had to raise about $1,000 per, per uh, you know, student to do it. But the that stuck with me that, okay, the Lord gives you the vision. Uh, he's going to want you to pursue it and he'll keep bringing the money to make it happen. And Amen. and so, so if, uh, and then, but that was the attitude that he had. So in the church, people sure. would come up to him and say, Pastor, we need to do this, that, and the other. He goes, great, God's put it on your heart. He wants you to do it. And we'll um, you know, let people know about it. But it's exactly what you said, uh, Rob, and, and thank you for sharing that. Yeah. God's work done God's way will never want for anything. You know, I, um, I put together uh, you know, quite a number of books. This is the one on, on socialism. But uh, the first book that I did um, yeah, it was, I was actually, uh, helping at church teaching a Bible class. And I saw some quotes about what some famous people said about the Bible. And I thought I, I'll go to the library and check out a book about what all famous people said about the Bible. Couldn't find one. So I started to read through colonial charters and state constitutions and messages and papers of the presidents and Supreme court decisions. And I would typed it into a little 386 computer. If you remember way back then, yeah. before windows, before the internet. And, you had to crank um, those to start them, didn't you? Yeah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and and, uh, and and my wife kept threatening to throw the computer in the creek. We had a little Texas drainage creek behind our house. And so I learned how to back up the files, and I would have like a dozen <laughs> little floppy disks, and I would hide them around the house because uh, one time we had a, an old car in the garage that didn't run, but I, I would like put boxes of papers and records in it just because the place to store the stuff. One day I come home, and the garage is all clean. Oh. And I said, oh, what happened to the car with all that stuff in it? She goes, oh, I had it towed away. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. So so she threatened to throw that computer. It's like, she could do that. So I like hid, hid floppy disks under mattresses and in shoe boxes. And anyway, I finally got <laughs> the thing rough. typeset and the, and the book sold a half a million copies. And um, it, um, you know, it's been used on the floor of Congress, even the Supreme Court. Wow. And in 2014, there was a city in New York where they're opening in prayer in Jesus' name and the, 
ACLU sues him, and the Justice Anthony Kennedy says, even our Continental Congress opened prayer in Jesus' name, and he gives the prayer, and it cites the book, W. Federer, America's God and Country, and all my friends that write history books, they go, how did you get the Supreme Court to mention your book by name in the decision? It's like, Come on. I don't know. But it all started with an idea, teaching a Bible class at church. Did your and wife so, stop throwing away your stuff? Um, well, she, she has gotten more free today. <laughs> um, but she, she has given me ideas for books. For example, the socialism book. She, she talked about me writing it for a year. And I would like, you know, so I'll get around to it. I'll get around to it. I, I, I want to tell all the folks that are viewing and listening, your wife always sends us a handwritten thank you note. She's precious. Oh, well, we yeah. think the world of you, Rob. You and Michelle and your family are, are very dear to us. Yeah, and, as um, you are to us. But I, I, I share those stories just to be an encouragement that something as simple as teaching a Bible class and getting an idea and that turned into not just a book that that Im- impacted lots of different areas, uh, but it ended up being uh, uh, changed in a career path for me. And so I sort of got into the, all the history writing and, and speaking. But so God can Bill, give Bill, you an Bill, idea. Bill, let me let, let me let me uh, I'm going to derail you because I know you probably had a direction you want to go and we're limited on time. But I, I wanted to I wanted I, I, I just was inspired to ask you this, if you don't mind. Um, You're talking about simple ideas in the midst of what appears to be an unstoppable juggernaut and, and how the littlest things can change the course of history. And I have never heard anyone present better than you how overwhelming the odds were in the formulation of this nation and looking at the War of Independence, what we were up against, and how few even fought in that War of Independence, contending for a nation whose whose conception and and birth was, you know, troubled at best, and yet prevailed. I, I, David McCullough's book on 1776. It was one of the most trying years in 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 the in world history, and and when you look at how delicate this this experiment in liberty was and how every moment it was almost snuffed out do, do you want to take that and share with folks just a a flyover of the birth of this nation and really how it, it was against all odds is that something right. you want to do yeah yeah that, uh, so the british empire was he doesn't seem as motive, motivated by that I, are you excited because if you had somewhere else to go you go with it i did say that at the beginning you get to go wherever you want no no this is good because we're facing a global threat the british empire was the most powerful global power they had india australia new zealand hong kong british guyana canada barbados bermuda jamaica canada america the, the sun never set on the british empire 13 million square miles, a half a billion people. The King of England was a global, he was a one world government guy with him at the top. And we wanted to break away from him. We had no Navy, we had no standing army, just a bunch of ragtag people that, you know, volunteered off their farm. Uh, you know, the Battle of Bunker Hill, they were as old as 60 and as young as 12. Uh, there were American Indians, there were blacks, there were, everybody, it was just a pitched in effort. And, uh, when you realize that the odds, it took eight years. Uh, it took um, trusting in the Lord. It took a tremendous amount of courage, but it produced the freest and most prosperous nation that the planet had ever seen. 
you also said it wasn't a nationalistic movement. It was community driven. Meaning that it's not like the it's not like Washington communicated with all thirteen colonies, or that the Continental Army, you know, and there was a a, a directive given. It, it it started in churches and hamlets and individuals uh, developing in their own communities. You talk about this bean patch idea that you alluded to. It, it, am I correct in that remembrance? Yeah, the yeah the first year of the war was really one colony, Massachusetts. Right. That's where the Battle of Bunker Hill was. That's where, you know, the Dorchester Heights, all these different things. And it was the local people in Massachusetts uh, that they had their Minutemen um, and they had the, the Old South Meeting House. They had, you know, John uh, Adams and Samuel Adams. And uh, but it was it was just and it took a while. That's why when they had the Continental Congress, they wanted somebody from another state to write the. Declaration of Independence, and so that they got uh, Virginia um, with Thomas Jefferson, but they wanted the the movement to be more than just this one. But it started with this one local community, uh, Lexington and Concord, um, and the people having backbone, saying enough. And um, but yes, the the pastors were an integral part of that. They were the ones that taught the people these principles of liberty. You know, if I were to sum up. Uh, all of Western civilization and all of what America, what makes America great, in one word, it would be individual. Mm. That our form of government, our experiment, empowers the individual. You get individual rights. You have an individual conscience. You get individual possessions. You get your possessions are protected. It's, it's all based around the individual. That concept goes back to ancient Israel, uh, goes back to... Every, every individual being taught the law and be, being accountable to God to follow the law. And every individual got families and, and they got to, they were all, all the men were in the militia and every individual. And you contrast that to the rest of the world. All the rest of the world is group. And you have the king as the head of the group. And it's a gang. It, it's, and you identify your worth. In the, in the East, it's called honor, shame, culture. If the group honors you, that's good. If the group shames you and wants to kick you out, that's bad. They don't have a necessary idea of a absolute right and absolute wrong. It's all just groups. You know, I was reading about one of the the Japanese um, inventors that made, I don't know if it was a Nintendo or one of those games, um, and then he made a new one with the little goggles that you put on, but they cut the funding and so he did it in black and white. And he's at the game show and everybody's saying, this is bad, this is lousy. And he goes out and commits suicide. Uh, you know, that his worth is based on acceptance or rejection. And then in Islam, uh, they are a honor-shame culture. The ummah, or the community, the group honors you. That's good. If they shame you, if a daughter embarrasses the parents in front of their group, they'll, they'll murder their own daughter. Um, and in Europe, you had kings. The kings would set what's in the group. Everybody would, this is the wig that you put on. This is the dress that you put on. Everybody wants to be modeled after the authority figure that sets. But the Judeo-Christian concept emphasizes the individual. And so that's why whenever communism and socialism comes in, they have to get rid of the individual. They have to get rid of you identifying as an individual person with rights from God. They want you to identify with a group. And, um, and so that's the battle. 
Um, yeah, that's the that, seed of the cancel culture yeah. movement right now is that same honor shame thing. Yep. It's that same group think that they're engaging in right now. Exactly. Yeah, I, I put together um, a whole presentation on how to brainwash a nation. And it basically is manipulating group acceptance or rejection. And yep. it's, Build it's on quite that. fascinating. I don't know how much time we have, but... We got to um, go for it. Uh, an individual water molecule is just a single molecule, but you put it together with other water molecules that operates as a group. You can have waves, you can have clouds, um, a fish in a bowl, but you put it together with other fish, it operates in a group, yeah, right? If you go swimming, you can see them. A bird in a cage, but you put it together with other birds, they operate in a group. They can fly in these beautiful patterns. Well, an individual person is an individual, but you put us together with other people and we operate as a group. We're constantly giving and receiving signals of are we being accepted or rejected? Yeah. And there, we are social creatures and we want to fit in with a group. It's a very powerful dynamic. And, um, you know, uh, I go through marketing. So uh, originally marketing in the 1800s was Wells Fargo Wagon and Sears Catalog, and they would list everything about a sewing machine. But then in the early 1900s, you had the understanding of the group and you had these slick magazines and they would have a picture of, a, of an item and make it look like everybody's using it. And uh, the, the classic is Crisco. Nobody knew what was in Crisco, um, but they had these ads of happy moms and happy families eating this delicious looking food. And, and it was such a successful ad campaign, it put out of business the lard industry. Lard is where you'd render fat yeah. from an animal and make soap and so forth. And um, um, does anybody know what's in Crisco? They even made uh, up a term, vegetable-based. I was thinking um, it made, made out of spam or something. seed oils, right? Industrial yeah, seed oil, gunk. Cotton seed oil. Uh, so in the South, they harvested cotton, and they had these mountains of seeds that nobody used, but they'd press them into this black, mucky oil that they would use in factories and machines. Nobody it's one of, it's ate one of the, that stuff. Yeah, it's one of the number one worst things you can put in your diet, actually, industrial seed oils. Talking to the fit guy on my left here. And, uh, and so somebody came up with the idea of bleaching it and putting it in a can with a nice ad campaign that makes it look like everybody's using it, and, and we've all eaten it. Um, and so th you go from knowing everything about a sewing machine to knowing nothing about a product, but people buy it because it looks like everybody's using it. And yeah. so this was studied by Edward Bernays, and he was a pioneer marketer. And he realized that if you could have an ad campaign that made it look like everybody, his, his first was women's shoes. And he would get a famous actress to get pictures with these shoes. And then he'd do this ad campaign. And lo and behold, all the ladies would want that style of shoe. And in his book, uh, the, the Engineering of uh, Consent, he also called it propaganda. Uh, he later changed the word propaganda to public relations. Um, but he said, ladies go into a shoe store and they're looking at the shoes and they think they're deciding what shoes they want to wear when really the decision was made by the marketing person, uh, executive in some big corporation uh, deciding which shoes they're going to advertise, which shoes they're going to make look like are the in shoes. And the lady goes into the store thinking, well, these are the in shoes and, and, and I'm making my choice, but it's already been cho chosen for. Her. And so it went from there to politics. And so yep. instead of 
motivating a person to buy a product, you're now uh, uh, motivating them to adopt a political ideology. And even uh, a socialist named Norm Chomsky wrote a book called Manufacturing Consent. Manufacturing the appearance that everybody is agreeing on something to manipulate people that want to fit in with a group. You're making it look like the group is behind this. And um, uh, years ago, I was with Phyllis Schlafly, and she talked about these radical, you know, student groups, um, SD, whatever the Students for Democratic, whatever, SDS. Um, and they had a mimeograph machine in the basement of one building, and they would come up with, uh, you know, uh, students against Vietnam War, and then students for this. And th they had like a half a dozen different organizations with different newsletters, but it was all the same handful of kids that were printing it all out. But they gave the impression, and they would post them all around campus, gave the impression that there must be a lot of kids that are... No, there, there weren't. You, you had um, multiplied your effect through, through the media. And, uh, and so then the next iteration of this is... War of the Worlds, 1938, radio drama, Orson Welles. We interrupt this program to announce that New Jersey is being invaded by Martians. <laughs> and the entire country panics in fear instantly, runs outside, everybody's looking in the sky for, for spaceships. And it was a phenomenon that you can not just motivate people to buy a product, but now fear. with fear, you can yeah. motivate them. And yeah. then you go to Germany, and Joseph Goebbels was the minister of propaganda for the Nazis the National Socialist Workers' Party. And he would uh, do these films making, you know, Hitler look like he's a hero, but he would orchestrate these Coliseum events with 100,000 people. And they would have all the pageantry, and at the front, they would begin to give the Hitler salute. And it would work its way back, and everybody, sort of like a wave at a football game. And everybody would see everybody else giving the Hitler salute, and then you'd feel pressure to give it, and somebody would see you give it, and they'd feel pressure to give it. And it was this manufacturing of consent, and that's how you were able to brainwash an entire nation behind the Nazi movement. Well, this was studied, this phenomenon was studied after the war of how people want to fit in with the group. And, um, and so the, one of them was the Solomon Ash conformity experiment. I may have talked about this before. Um, I recall. But, but that's where the, they did it on college campuses and they would pull eight students into a room. Seven were paid ahead of time to be actors and one was a naive participant. And the teacher would put two cards on the front desk. One card had one line on it and the other three lines, one longer, one shorter, one the same. And beginning with the paid actor students, one by one, they would stand up and say that the shorter line was equal to the first line. By the time it got around to the eighth naive participant, 30% of them would deny their own eyes and go along with the group. They would doubt their perception. They would, maybe, I don't, maybe they know something I don't know, right? And so this desire to fit in, they did another one. Uh, Chuck Colson wrote about it in Spiral of Silence. That is, uh, people will voluntarily self-censor publicly expressing their views if they think they're in the minority. Hmm. And so uh, it was a wine tasting and they poured vinegar in the wine and all the couples that were in on it, uh, there's only one couple that was not in on it. They were the naive couple. All the other couples would, would um, stand up and say, this tastes wonderful, this tastes great. And this couple had written on their card that they thought it was lousy, but then they scratched that out and finally got around to them and they go, yeah, it was really good. 
And then someone simply said that they poured vinegar in. The couple that had changed their views criticized them for saying that they poured vinegar in. And it became something called false enforcement. Once people buy into the lie, they will want to enforce other people buying into the lie. Wow. Oh, yeah. right? Once you say, well, we've okay, witnessed you gotta... that for a little while now. Yeah. The mask deal. And yeah. The and and deal. so this idea of manipulating um, the, the, the consensus, it's, um, they did it with the uh, Korean War prisoners. Uh, they, uh, these guys volunteered, went into the military, loved America. They got captured. We rescued them out, and they hated America. It's like, what happened to them when they were in prison? And it was something called brainwashing, which was a term taken out of the Buddhist concept of cleansing the mind and cleansing the, the thoughts. And, and so they would take a, a prisoner and isolate them and deprive them to the place where they just craved, 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 wanting to get back to normal, wanting to have a relationship with other people. And when they finally got to that breaking point, they would bring them into a room with a half dozen guys who had already caved. And before the prisoner could be accepted in their group and get the emotional support and reinforcement that they so much wanted, they first had to confess their whiteness. They had, had to confess that they were part of the Western evil capitalist system that was doing terrible things. And once they did, then they got this emotional reinforcement and, uh, and it was, it's powerful and it stuck. And so now it's gone on a national level. You want to have the whole nation go through a period of isolation and deprivation so much so that people just craved wanting to get back to normal. They say, okay, before you get back to normal, you got to get this booster. You got to, you know, give up this freedom. You got to, you know, get, give up the guns you have in your house and you have to, you know, re do your taxes with the facial recognition so they get your metrics. You know what I mean? It's one by one giving up these freedoms to, to be able to fit back in with the group. And um, I could go on, but this dynamic is so powerful. Here's Peter. He's been with Jesus three years. Looks him in the eye and says, I'll never deny you. A couple hours later, Peter is with a group around a fire. Yeah. And a girl gets in his face and says, you're with Jesus. And you can just imagine Peter looking at everybody around the fire and they're all looking at him. He's about to get kicked out of the group. And what does he say? I never met the guy. Three times. Yeah. He caved that fast. It's powerful. This acceptance or rejection in the group is very powerful. Now, after the resurrection, Peter's Amen. filled with the Holy Spirit. And now he stands up to the Sanhedrin and they said, we told you never to speak in his, his name again. Peter said, it's better to obey God rather than men. Suddenly, Peter does not care what other people say. He only cares about what God says. That is what God is calling us to, to forsake the fear of man and only have the fear of God. To Amen. forget what other people are saying about you and only care what God says. The fear of man is a snare. I think I think that's a I think that's a good note to end on and 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 just to emphasize as you always do when you share the significance of what Christ does when he comes into your life that you know the 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 enemy comes to steal kill and destroy to to, to steal our individuality to, to to steal our identity in Christ to steal that we're significant uh, and and then to lie to us and tell us we're wards of the state and we have no choice and we have no freedoms and we'll tell you what to do and then all of a sudden the Lord comes in and we realize we've been fearfully and wonderfully made. We're more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. No weapon fashioned against us will stand. And 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 this is a man 
fully God, fully man who goes to the cross. No man takes his life. He willingly laid it down out of love. Nails didn't hold him to the cross. He's God. It was love that held him there. And he and and in the weakest moment, and as the scripture says, in our weakness, Christ's strength is made perfect. In 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 the death of Christ, all of a sudden he dominates sin and death and overcomes whatever stronghold the enemy thought he had, and they thought they were victorious. He rises from the grave, and that resurrection power is available to all who would call upon the name of the Lord. And 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 this is this is the profound power that God grants to the individual. When we call upon his his name, we will be saved. There, there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And, and that gives us not just freedom from our sin. I mean, we'll still sin, but we're free from the condemnation. And, and we don't have to earn that salvation. He already gave it to us. And it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. But then it transforms us to make us not self-centered, self-consumed, and and enslaved by sin, we're now free to set others free. Uh, it, 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 is, it, it, it is the antidote to this poison that you have so eloquently laid out of, of this intense, uh, nefarious move of the, the globalist elites that, you know, I was reading out of Psalm 2, the Lord laughs in derision as the nations conspire together. It's not like he's overwhelmed and he... And oh my goodness, uh, you know, they've got Klaus Schwab on there. Oh my goodness, they've got George Soros. What can I do? I'm only God. When when you realize who you are, but more importantly, who he is, and he's the why and what you do, he you exchange fear for courage. And and then you're a new creature in Christ, and nothing can stop you. Would 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 you agree or would you add to it? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I love that. I, I, I'm so glad that you brought that up. Um, you know, God created light, and uh, Einstein's theory of relativity is that the closer you can travel approaching the speed of light, for you, time stands still. And theoretically, if you could travel the speed of light, for you, time would stand still. Well, God created light, so he's obviously faster than light. So for God, time effectively stands still. Don't ask me to explain it. He is in a different dimension. He created time, so he's obviously not limited by time. But uh, he can. you can make your decision, and everybody in the world can make their decisions, but he can readjust in any moment every single atom in the universe. It's almost like, you know, looking at, at, at things sideways, he can... For him, time stands still, and he can readjust every atom in the universe before it goes to the next frame, right? And, to make a way where uh, there wasn't one, yeah. And and so, if, to me, or from our perspective, it can look panicky, and everything's happening really fast from God's point of view. No, he, it's he's he's not panicking at all. He's moving, and he is working his will, and it does. He does want to bring people to him, and I tell people, God has Plan A and Plan B. Plan A is he blesses us so much we turn to him out of gratefulness. If that doesn't work, there's plan B. He stands back and lets us have the fruit of our own actions, and when it gets really bad, we turn to him out of desperation. His goal is to have us turn to him. And if that's the way we are as individuals, what's a nation but a bunch of individuals? What's the world but a bunch of bunch of individuals? And so he could have uh, a, a national, a global crisis, but his goal is to have people turn to him. Yeah. And um, 
and when we turn to him, he, he delivers us and, um, and he uses us to, to bring his will on earth Amen. by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, I think that's a good note to end on, Bill. I, I'm so grateful for the insights. And, and I do love the way in which you intertwine the Lord and all of it. I, I don't know if I ever told you the story, and I'll, I'll just close with it because I know you're busy and it's late where you are. But, um, you know, I, I wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer. I wasn't a great student. I had never, I'd never written a term paper, even in high school. I still got out. I, I graduated. I was an athlete. I'd gotten a scholarship to Tulane University. I didn't do well there. I ended up going to community college, still struggling, not knowing the Lord. I get to Fresno State. I, I, I become a Christian. And all of a sudden, God gives me this voracious appetite to read the Bible. Now, I, I had never read a book cover to cover. <clears throat> and I start reading. And everywhere where I see his name, it's capitalized, his, H-I-S, you know, his, this, his, that. And I, I saw his being capitalized, and I was moved by it. And as I'm reading the scriptures, and I can't get enough of it, it's almost like the words are jumping off the page into my heart. And, and it, it's living and breathing, and it's, it's doing something nothing else ever did. And now I have to choose a major because I'm getting to that place. And, and my dad wants me to go into business. I go into the catalog at the school looking at the different departments and I'm going through the business school and looking at the courses. I can't pronounce the courses, let alone comprehend how I'd even pass any of these courses. And I'm, I'm struggling over it. I say a simple prayer. I get to the Bachelor of Arts section of the catalog and I get to the history department. Now, dyslexia or whatever, <clears throat> every, every title of the class began with the word history. I didn't see the word history. I saw his story. I know it sounds strange, but that's why his story of America, his story of China. And I've come to realize with history, it's this redemptive thread of God's hand in the affairs of man through time he created by grace to allow us to be reconciled to him. We're on this earth for one purpose, to be reconciled to God. Time's going to wrap up. For time to exist, there needs to be a beginning and an end. When the end is, we can all speculate, and everybody's got their eschatology. But I do know this. The things we remember most and the most profound are the people who have done those things that side with the will of God and the freedom of man. And, and those are the ones that inspire and touch us to this day. You know, no one wants to name their child Genghis Khan or, you know, Adolf Hitler. But, but you look at these folks that have changed history, Winston Churchill, Ronald Reagan, uh, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, at least in, in our world— and, and, and that redemptive thread through history of his story, seeking to save that which is lost. And, and that's the whole point of why you're here on this cracked marble that you're going to breathe your last. And I, I, I close with this. The, the tetragrammaton that Moses was able to extract from the Lord when he saw the burning bush and he said, you know, what is your name? Which is kind of gutsy, asking the God who holds the heavens in the span of his hand, what's your personal name? What, what, what do you go by? It's, it's like asking a woman you've never met, what's your name? It's, it's not like she has to give that to you. What, what are your intentions? Why are you asking? And yet he asked God what his personal name is, and he tells him it's that tetragrammaton that, that Orthodox Jews don't pronounce, Jews don't. Um, and, and it's YWHW, but it's, it's as Jewish scholars describe, it's the the inhale and the exhale of the human breath is found in that name uh, uh, yad uh, yav, 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 yav 
It's, it's exhaling, uh, inhaling and exhaling. So I think about the atheist, that when they're born, they, they speak the name of God when they inhale. And when they die and they breathe their last breath, they're exhaling the name of God. And, and to even muzzle and try to stop the speech, which he's the logos, he is the, the, the word, and it's and it's logical discussion and absolute truth and contention, uh, contending for freedom. I, I I love this fact that God is working in the affairs of man. There are absolutes. We're to contend for that. We're to use our mind, and everything. All creation speaks of the glory of God, and every man is without excuse. And if people can't see this right now, where the entire world there's an attempt, as it was with the Tower of Babel to enslave us and bring us under the control of a despotic elite group. And there's God who he just speaks. And not only does, does he end the storm, he ends the ancillary effects of the storm, the wind and the waves. Usually you can stop the wind, but the waves keep going. He stops not just the storm, but the ancillary effect of the storm. He has the ability, as you pointed out, Bill, to change everything like that. Call on the name of the Lord. He'll show you great and mighty things you know not of. This is a season where mankind needs to call out corporately to God and say those three words that the woman, the Syrophoenician woman with a demon-possessed daughter said. I mean, she was exasperated. She was at wit's end, and and she was she was needing help. And it says that she worshiped the Lord, and I thought that fascinating. It says she worshiped the Lord. She didn't sing, which we attribute to worship. She just said three words, Lord, help me. This is a time for all mankind to remember who you are. You've been creating the image of God. You're overwhelmed. You're concerned about the horizon, and you're watching your fears dissipate. You're watching your liberty dissipate and fear increase. And this is all you need to simply say, "Lord, help me," and He will. He will. And I, I just I want to encourage folks to call upon the name of the Lord. His name's Jesus. And he is the the way, he's the truth, and he's the life. And he's ready to move and show himself strong on your behalf. And no one better articulates it than you, Bill. Thanks for doing that tonight. Yeah, So blessed to have you on a Federer Friday. Yeah, uh, Bill, aside from Federer Friday, where do people get a hold of you yeah. and Let how do they buy your books? Because you. they, they, they can't just hear you on Fridays. they got to yeah. hear you around. Tell everybody how we can. we got to sell some of your books, too. They're amazing. Come on. You're kind. You're kind. Uh, AmericanMinute.com. AmericanMinute.com. And uh, this, by the way, is that first book that I mentioned to you, America's God and Country Encyclopedia Quotations. But um, and I have a daily history email that I send out that you can sign up for there. And uh, you can click on some of the videos that I've recorded before. But and, it's and they can they can buy your book. They can buy your books at AmericaMinute.com. AmericanMinute.com. Yes. AmericanMinute.com. They can buy your books there. Yes. Thank you. All right. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, Bill, thanks for joining us. God bless you, and we'll see you next Friday. That's my hope. I know there'll be sometimes you can't make it, and we'll figure out what to do with those Fridays, but you bless us more than you know, and I just pray God's safety upon your travels and and just that he bless you everywhere you go because you blessed us. Amen. Oh, well, ho- hopefully I'll have something else to share next Friday. So, all right. Oh. <laughs> Amen. All right, all right, man. See you. Bless you. All right. You too. Uh, Bill Fetter, what a treasure. He's great. Every time I listen to him, I always learn something more. Yeah. Um, but um, but I can't contain it all. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like drinking from a fire hydrant. Yeah, yeah. No, it's amazing. Yeah. 
Well, let me let me pray for Bill and pray for all the folks. Lord, we thank you that you're bigger than all of this, and there's just such a peace to know that you are the God who shows yourself strong on behalf of those who seek you. And I, I pray that folks would do like that Syrophoenician woman. Just call on the name of the Lord. Worship him. Three words. Lord, help me. Just recognize who he is and how much you need him. He's your father in heaven, and he's holy, and hallowed be his name. His kingdom come, and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he'll give you your needs daily. Uh, he'll deliver you from from temptation. And, and, and even the trials, there's a purpose in all of them. And God knows what he's doing, and it's time all of us should call upon his name and trust him. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved, and that name is Jesus, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we do ask that you would just reveal that to all who have watched this program, listened to this broadcast, and that you would draw them to yourself because, God, we need you. We always have, and now we realize it more than ever. We thank you that you are there to be our deliverer and our Savior. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, folks, thanks for joining us tonight on Liberty Station. Uh, Federer Fridays are going to prove to be one of my favorites. Uh, We'll see you next week. We're going five days a week, Monday through Friday. But we're going to take a break on Saturday and Sunday because i got to preach on Sunday, and I need a day to just do nothing. You too, Bryce. I don't know how you pull this off. A joy to be with you. Good night, everybody. See you later. God bless.